This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Before we begin, I'm, I'm interested to know, Father said many of you are interested in the theology of the body. I'm interested to know how many of you have read it or know something of it or knew something of it before you saw the flyer uh, that this was going to be the talk this evening. Anyone have any previous experience of the theology of the body? Okay. Yeah, that's pretty much what I expected. So, um, which is great. So I can introduce you to this a little bit this evening. Uh, briefly, simply to say that the theology of the body um, is comprised of a series of Wednesday audiences. You know, the Pope has a general audience every Wednesday. Pope Francis continues this tradition, in which he speaks for about 20 minutes or so on a very on a topic. And Pope Francis, as did Pope Benedict and before him St. John Paul II, tend to string together those audiences to form um, cohesive teachings on various themes. St. John Paul II did that every Wednesday beginning September 5th, 1979 for five years, all on this topic. And those audiences were strung together and eventually became known as the theology of the body. It was really St. John Paul II's um, mature understanding of human sexuality and human anthropology, something that he had been working on for many years as a young priest and then as, as, as the Archbishop of Krakow before he was elected Pope. The theology of the body came as a sort of, he intended the theology of the body to be a sort of robust defense of Pope St. Paul VI's uh, 1968 encyclical, Humane Vitae. If you don't know what Humane Vitae was, this was the landmark encyclical that created a lot of dissent and division in the church, in which Pope Paul VI defended the church's constant teaching against contraception, right, against the contraception. And this was a very, um, to call it a hot-button issue at the time would be an understatement, right? Because beginning in the 20th century, especially once you get to the mid-20th century, with the advent of what today we would call the pill, you know, which is essentially using synthetic hormones to suppress a woman's fertility, it was always understood that contraception introduced what contraception there was before the pill, which would usually be some sort of barrier like a, a condom or a diaphragm, that that was intrinsically wrong because it established a barrier between the most intimate communion and communication between a husband and a wife. So the argument then for many was, well, the pill doesn't do that. It's just medicine like every other pill that we take. And so it was really difficult um, and then Pope St. John XXIII established a commission in the early 60s of theologians and priests and lay people and bishops that kept changing its constituency, kept being bigger, kept adding people to it. So by the time its last meeting in 1967, 66, 67, it was this huge committee and no one, there was tremendous disagreement about the pill. Is it, does it count as contraception? Is it? Uh, just medicine? Is it reasonable use of human bodies processes that medicine can figure out and then can be ordered to the good? And the majority on that commission actually thought that the pill was fine. 
It was the minority that thought, no, it's really contraception. Now, they gave all of their, all their work to the Holy Father, to Pope St. Paul VI. And he read it, spent like a year or two not doing anything. And then he came out with Humanae Vitae in 1968, and it sounded like, as you read it, and in those days, they didn't have internet, they didn't have email, people were getting things, facts to them, page by page, all right? And as they're reading along, so imagine in 1968 how slow the faxes would be, you know, all over the world, right? You know, just like a dot matrix printer going, you know, across. So it took them, I mean, the whole thing was a hundred and some pages. So, you know, it took them all day to get the whole thing. So they're reading it page as, as it comes out of the fax machine. And the first several paragraphs sound exactly like what the majority said the issue was. So it looked like he was moving towards the majority opinion of this commission uh, that the pill was not, in fact, contraception. Until you get to paragraph 12, in which he said that in the conjugal act between a husband and a wife, and this is, he wasn't new in this, people were talking about this in the 20th century, there are two meanings or two symbols or significance of the conjugal act, the sexual act. One is the unitive aspect. The act brings the husband and wife together in a profound psychological, emotional, and we would want to say even a spiritual communion with each other. But then the other is this procreative aspect, what it's actually naturally intended to do. And in paragraph 12 of Humanae Vitae, he said, God has designed that those two meanings can never be separated. Now, he spends the rest of the encyclical going through what happens when you try to, all the fallout, all of these things. But he never really argued why the unitive and the procreative can never be separated, other than to say this is what the church has always taught, we believe this is what God wants. Cardinal Wojtyla of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla, was never satisfied with that sort of answer. He always wanted to provide a robust theological explanation for why. Why is the unitive and the procreative together? And as he went through the 70s, um, he published several defenses of Humanae Vitae, as scholars do, um, of trying to articulate and solidify his thought. The theology of the body, what became those audiences, was intended to be a book that he was going to publish, and then he gets elected pope. So he simply cut up this book to turn them into those Wednesday catechesis audiences over five years. And he's very clear when he gets to the end that this whole reason he did all of this was to explain, defend, and give a theological framework to understand why the unitive and the procreative are united. So, that's by way of background. A few things to note about the theology of the body. First, they're catechesis, they're catechetical addresses, which means they're intended to catechize. So in those addresses, he's attempting to educate Christians. He doesn't write the theology of the body for non-Christians or non-believers or even people of goodwill. He's, he's writing for Christians and obviously specifically Catholics. And so the theology of the body takes as its starting point Scripture. Scripture is the starting point for the theology of the body because for the Catholic theologian, there is, the, the way theology works is we begin by what God has revealed, either through Scripture or through tradition. 
That is the ultimate authority. I don't know if we have any philosophers in the room, but you know in philosophy, uh, arguments from authority are often the weakest arguments, right? In theology, it's just the reverse. Arguments from authority are the strongest arguments because the authority ultimately is God and what he has revealed. That's how theology works. We begin with what God has said, and then we figure out what does it mean, what he has said, and then what more can we say based on what he has said without contradicting what he said over here or over there or over here. That's, how, that's what the science of theology fundamentally is. So John Paul isn't interested in the theology of the body and making philosophical arguments for the truths that he presents, even though he himself uh, always considered himself a philosopher and not a theologian. His biographer, George Weigel, likes to say, or liked to say, that the theology of the body was a theological time bomb set off to go off somewhere in the middle of the 21st century. And indeed, since uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s, and even today, uh, there's a whole cottage industry of workshops and books and institutes all devoted to this scriptural view of the human person and sexuality and marriage. The, the theology of the body is considered by many to be radical and groundbreaking. I'm not sure it's groundbreaking. That's part of my point here. Now, why am I talking about this for a Thomistic Institute lecture? Well, because Wojtyla, John Paul II, was essentially a Thomist. He was a classically trained priest, just like every priest was in the 1950s. And he learned Thomas much better than most priests today are learning St. Thomas in the seminary. He had a wonderful appreciation for St. Thomas's metaphysics, for Thomas's anthropology and for St. Thomas's view of morality and how St. Thomas understood morality. In fact, in his early years as uh, a priest, he often argued that St. Thomas's system, his theology, his anthropology, his morality provided an excellent synthesis um, of the nature of human choice and human action, the nature of virtue, and what it means to be good, what it means to be happy, what it means to be moral. Nevertheless, throughout his early career, Carol Wojtyla, the man who became St. John Paul II, was exceedingly concerned, at least by the time you get to the 50s and 60s, and even into the 70s, he was exceedingly concerned that theology and philosophy, Catholic theology and Catholic philosophy, had become too abstract and too disconnected from the lived experience of young families and the lay faithful in the pews. Now this is why you often hear, if you follow these things, and if you are, I presume there might be some philosopher, philosophy majors in the room, you often hear that John Paul was a phenomenologist. It is true that he dabbled in the philosophy of phenomenology, which is that philosophical school of thought that tends to emphasize human experience and the process of human consciousness and the process of human thought. But it should also be said that he didn't do that uncritically. He was always throwing that up against the classical metaphysics and ontology of St. Thomas Aquinas. Even though he was interested in reconnecting theological and philosophical thought with human experience, or at least speaking theologically and philosophically in ways that the faithful could understand and connect with, he wasn't a relativist, he wasn't um, purely about the subjective life of the person. 
He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe, fundamentally, that that means there is such a thing as objective truth, and that the world makes a certain amount of sense, that created reality has a certain structure, and that we can learn from it. Christians believe that God makes sense, and that revelation is reasonable, even if at times it's mysterious and we can't always plumb and connect to the mysteries as, nice, as nicely or as tightly as we would like. So this evening, what I'm going to do, and we passed out an outline, is I'm going to spend a, a, a lot of time just on the theology of the body, just giving you just really uh, a surface view of some of the main points of the theology of the body, and certainly not all of it. And then we're going to give you, talk a little bit about the light of St. Thomas and St. Thomas's and how John Paul, really a lot of these insights came from Thomas, if not articulated in the scriptural way that John Paul did. He learned a lot of these insights from his study of Thomistic Aristotelian philosophy and theology. And I'm going to give you six, and these really were just like skipping stones across the pond. We're just going to touch on six of these um, principles, okay? So first, the theology of the body, original solitude. The scriptural foundation for the theology of the body is really the creation story that's found in the second and third chapters of the book of Genesis. We all know this story. Uh, God creates man, he places him in a garden, and then he sees that it's not good for the man to be alone. After bringing all the animals to the man, God creates the woman to be his partner. For John Paul, chapter 2 of Genesis especially, he said, constitutes in some way the oldest record of man's self-understanding. And together with chapter 3, it is the first witness of human consciousness. These are very old stories in Genesis, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so in chapter 2 and 3, John Paul said we have a really ancient understanding or a, a, a testimony of how man saw himself in the world and with God. And it's an inspired account of man's self-understanding. And so the primal experience of man manifested in those two chapters in Genesis is what St. John Paul II refers to as original solitude. Man is alone. He is alone in the world. Um, he's alone in some ways before God. So, man, created man, finds himself at the first moment of existence before God in search, John Paul says, of his own identity, of his own definition. And he goes on to conclude, therefore, that this, this sort of search of our objective identity uh, is part of all of our lives. The search for the objective identity of man, what or who he is, by accepting and living out the identity and vocation that God has, in fact, created in our very existence and in our very being. The second conclusion that John Paul reaches from the Genesis narrative is that self-knowledge goes hand-in-hand hand with knowledge of the world. This is where you can see, for those of you who are philosophy majors, some of his phenomenology sneaking in. Man realizes that he is alone in, in, that, in, the, in Genesis chapter 2 because he realizes that he is different from the animals. 
He's different from the world that he has found himself in. He's different from God. The body, so our physical body, the physical body plays a significant role in man's realization that he is alone in the world in Genesis 2. Because it's the body that reveals to the man that he is different. His body is not like any of the bodies of the animals that, he, that God brings to him. It's the body that permits us, this is actually a direct quote from John Paul, to be the author of genuinely human activity. I mean, opposable thumbs, for instance, is very important to, be, uh, to do the things we human beings do, right? He says this, in human activity, the body expresses the person. Remember this for later. The body expresses the person. We live in a world and a culture right now that seems to want to diminish the body and, or thinks that maybe the church is diminishing the body. On the contrary, the Catholic tradition, and certainly the tradition John Paul is operating out of, is that the body is incredibly important for the person. It's manifesting the person to the world and revealing to the person himself or herself that she is different from others and different from the world. This is precisely why, John Paul says, that Adam's first reaction upon seeing Eve is not to notice her physical differences from him, but to notice that she has a body like his. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. They are alike. This is one of the central themes of the theology of the body. As I said, remember this. The body expresses the person. It communicates the person. The creation of the woman now means, in Genesis, that mankind has two complementary ways of expressing personhood and being in the body. Male and female. The human body and its male and female complementarity has what John Paul calls a spousal attribute or a spousal meaning. It directs, our bodies are in fact directed to the complement, to the other. The conjugal union, John Paul taught, carries within itself, so the sexual act carries within itself a particular awareness of the meaning of the body in the reciprocal self-gift of the person. In the conjugal act, male and female become a gift to each other and a completion of each other in the ways that humans are bodies. Now there's a deeper reason, however, than merely the biological that the body, that the human person, is directed outward to the other as gift. The body is simply manifesting what is, in fact, ontological and written into our very existence and being. So it's not simply the biology that parts fit together, although that is a very important element of this. It has to do with the nature of creation. Here, in John Paul's words, quote, Genesis introduces us into the mystery of creation, that is, of the beginning of the world by the will of God, who is omnipotence in love. Consequently, every creature, 
bears within itself the sign of the original and fundamental gift, the gift of existence. Creation is a gift because man appears in it who, as an image of God, is able to understand the very meaning of the gift in the call from nothing to existence, end quote. So the uniqueness of humanity is not only that we go from nothingness into existence by the will of God, because all of creation does that, the uniqueness is that we can understand this trajectory. We can understand that kind of gift. And we can understand that this gift has a directionality. It has a trajectory. We are called out of nothingness into existence toward communion with other persons and men and women toward their complement, ultimately toward communion with the persons of God in the Trinity. This trajectory is not meant, even for James, John Paul, to end in marriage. It's meant to end in eternity, in us going from nothingness to existence, communion in this world with other persons, and perhaps a person, to ultimate communion with God, who is three persons in one nature. The body, he thinks, is a witness to this gift because it is also a witness to the love from which the original gift of creation springs. Men and women, through their bodies, are able to live this gift with each other in a unique way. The physical differences between the sexes are ordered to procreation, yes. But for John Paul, the body's meaning and value goes beyond biological procreation, as important as that is, to the expression of love and communion. And so the, the, what he calls the spousal meaning of the body, so we, that's a sort of a second principle you should know, right? First is the body communicates or manifests the person. The second is the spousal meaning of the body. The spousal meaning of the body concerns not only procreation, it concerns the communion of persons in love, in marriage. So in the theology of the body, marriage is intended not only for biological procreation, but in fact, to propagate the gift of creation through the gift of self to another from one generation to the next. So the drive to the other, sexual urges and cravings, for instance, which are manifest biologically, or, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about Aquinas, or my attraction to another in, in, for higher reasons, is a manifestation that this drive to propagate the gift of creation um, is part of our existence. And it's not simply about procreation, but about continuing the gift through their communion of bringing, co-creating with God, other souls and other persons from, from nothingness into existence, and ultimately to their legacy. So for St. John Paul II, I'm sure, and I think he says this somewhere in his initial book on all of this, which he wrote well before uh, Humanae Vitae came out, Love and Responsibility, actually says that the, 
the primary legacy of parents is not what they achieve in this world or even what their children or grandchildren achieve in this world. The primary legacy is when they and their children are in the beatific vision in union with God and eternity. The legacy of marriage is an eternal legacy, going from nothingness into existence, into communion, and ultimately into communion with God. Now, at the beginning of time, in that Genesis narrative, John Paul says that the man and the woman understood this. They had an intuitive understanding of the meaning of their own body. St. Thomas and most of the Christian tradition would agree with this. They knew that they were made to be gift to each other. Sin, original sin, ruins all of that. Right? After sin, the body no longer is as effective in communicating the person. This goes back to all sorts of things the church has always taught, and we see in scripture about the nature of sin. How it creates, for instance, when they sin, what's the first thing that they notice is their physical differences that they have to cover, right? Um, how with sin, there is now a static between our higher, our minds and our souls and our lower appetites. You know, it doesn't all line up well, right? St. Paul writes about this. So the body no longer communicates our personhood and our desires as purely as it was created to do because of, our, because of sinfulness. Sin, in other words, introduces concupiscence, which we might think of as an inflamed sensual desire, which is a threat to the whole structure of the person because it's a threat to self-mastery. With sin, the body in some ways revolts against the person. And even the, even the saint, even uh, the 80-year-old cloistered religious nun exp still experiences that revolt, even if she has no longer any sort of temptations of unchastity or impurity and pure thoughts. She's going to get arthritis. You know, her, her body grows old, you know, and so it's not, it, it works against her desires to be able to sit in chapel and pray for a few hours. So, one way to think about our culture today and, and how much of our culture today really has a problem with the body, either overemphasizing on the one hand or underemphasizing on the other, John Paul would say all of that's from sin, from original sin that's being manifested even in a cultural way. We are no longer masters of our body, of our bodies, of our sensual desires. We are no longer, in that sense, completely free. And if we do not have the interior freedom of self-mastery, then we cannot, in fact, make a simple gift of ourselves to someone else because we cannot give what we do not possess. And if we do not have self-possession, we cannot give ourselves to another properly and fully. And so this is our battle. Our very nature craves the other. It's still written into our existence. It looks to the other in order to be gift to the other. But concupiscence also means that we are always craving, always desiring the other for ourselves. We're never satisfied. So this desire combined with concupiscence means precisely that the union of man and woman, which should in fact be all satisfying, is in a fallen world insatiable generally insatiable. The union does not completely satisfy anymore. 
The interior struggle of our body's impulses can also alienate us from our body. The body becomes something else than a constituent principle in my identity, contributing to my identity, contributing to my being. And if my cravings or my difficulties and struggles with my body, whether it's in sexual things or food things or illness and sickness or whatever it is, can sometimes even seem to me to be separate from myself and not part of me. And so it's not surprising then for St. John Paul II that the spousal meaning of the body, which is to say the inherent direction of the body to the other, to the complement, is now confused. And he's writing all of this. He wrote all this in the 70s. This was all delivered in the early 80s. After original sin, given the alienation of the person from the body, the body becomes, for St. John Paul, a sort of territory of domination. We're always trying to suppress it and keep it in check. And the spousal meaning of the body is no longer as apparent to everybody. It's no longer intuitive. It's no longer apparent that my body is supposed to be a gift to another. After sin, then, St. John Paul said, the task, or the challenge, if you will, of men and women, and this is a direct quote, is to reconstruct the meaning of the reciprocal, reciprocal gift of self and to do this with great effort. The inherent spousal meaning of the body is not destroyed completely by sin because the body can still communicate as my body is now communicating to you in the words that I speak. But because of sin, our communications with our body are now distorted. And not just in the conjugal act, but all of our communications. The ability to lie. The ability to put on a good face when we're in fact angry or seething at someone. The inability we labor under to communicate honestly with one another. All of this is from original sin. And this is why we need Christ's redemption. It's in the marital act that the spousal meaning of the body, whether it's appropriately communicated or not, is on full display in this life for St. John Paul II. It's in the marital act that the language of the body is on full display. You see, precisely because the body has a meaning, a drive to the other, John Paul insisted the body, that there is an inherent language of the body, like every other language. And so there are inherent, there's an inherent, I don't know if we have any English majors here, but there's an inherent grammar, and there are rules of grammar to using the English language. Men and women use their body to communicate with one another and the world. We use words, we use facial expressions, and so forth. The body communicates. And the conjugal act for St. John Paul II is itself a communication between spouses. It's a communication of bodies. The problem is that because of sin, communicating with the language of the body, especially in the conjugal act, is no longer simple. Because of sin, because we can be alienated from our bodies, because we, can, we might not yet have achieved any self-mastery, we no longer communicate 
for lack of a better word, directly and simply. And so, John Paul says, couples have to work, and this is the actual word language used, to reread the language of the body, which is to say, couples have to work to, be, to regain the objective meaning of the body, the meaning the body was created to communicate. You have to learn the, language, the grammar and the rules and the syntax of the language before you can speak properly with it. All this goes back to the fact that for Wojtyla, once again, like great philosophical and, theolo- and the, the great philosophical and theological cr- Christian tradition before him, the body is an objective reality that must be respected, even in the marital bedroom. The body is not incidental or accidental to who we are. St. John Paul says, and this is a direct quote, If the human being, in marriage, and indirectly also in all spheres of mutual life together, gives to his behavior a meaning in conformity with the fundamental truth of the language of the body, then he is in the truth. In the opposite case, he commits lies and falsifies the language of the body. You might be able to see where all this is going. In their interactions, couples must not use their bodies or communicate with their bodies in ways that are contrary to the truth. The truth, and the truth that John Paul means most especially here, is the truth of the consent that they articulated on their wedding day. The truth of complete and radical gift to each other, of self-gift to each other. Thus, when couples, for example, separate or attempt to separate procreative and unitive, using the pill or any other means, they speak a lie with their bodies because they are withholding a very essential aspect of their body from the other, their fertility. And so, thus, Paul the Sixth's famous line that the unitive and procreative dimensions of the conjugal act are inseparable is true for John Paul precisely because the unitive is communicated through the bodily procreative elements, and the bodily procreative is in fact the fruit of the unitive. You can't have one without the other. You can't tell your spouse, I love you, and at the same time say or withhold something of yourself from your spouse. Attempting to communicate the unitive without the procreative is not, in fact, unitive. That's the fundamental point. To, com- to, to deliberately obfuscate what the body's inherent meaning is, in fact, is not unifying the couple in love as much as they might think it is. It's a lie because it doesn't respect the objective reality of the body and, in fact, the structure of the human person. Existence, or nothingness, existence, communion with one, ultimately communion with God. Now, he goes on further. We can talk about the redemption of Christ and how that works. There's a lot more richness there, but I need to turn to St. Thomas. My contention is that St. Thomas had a lot of this stuff figured out way back in the 13th century. Now, true, in the 13th century, people didn't speak about the matters of marriage as much as they did in the 20th century, and certainly not as much as they do in the 21st century. And it's true that you'll find no treatise on sexuality and the human person in the Summa Theologiae. But he had many of these principles already articulated. And Wojtyla knew that. When he was teaching in the University of Lublin, one of his first teaching posts, in the late 1950s, he taught St. Thomas straight out of the Summa. 
like most professors would have done in those days. It wasn't until the birth control debate in the 1960s and 1970s that he began to see that presenting the same natural law arguments was not connecting or convincing people. But the theology of the body presumes many of the conclusions that Aquinas had already reached, even though John Paul doesn't talk about them. In fact, a number of times in the theology of the body, he explicitly says it's, it's just not his intention to go into metaphysics and ontology and all this. He's focusing on the subjective side of the human person and their experience being in the human body and what scripture has to say about that. So these six print aspects, and each of them we can't spend too much time on. I'm, I'm hoping here, if you're not reading St. Thomas, that you will after, you know, some of, just to look at some of these things and learn some of these things from St. Thomas. Um, to suggest that these six aspects of Aquinas' teaching not only support the theology of the body and this notion of the spousal meaning of the body, but can also provide a deeper metaphysical and theological foundation for what John Paul was able to do in his catechesis. We should say that these are all very basic Thomistic principles, now largely forgotten in a lot of current discussions on marriage and sexuality and the body. And if they're not forgotten, they're not attributed to Aquinas, sadly. But make no mistake, Poitiva knew these principles, even if contemporary commentators, some of them, on the theology of the body down. So first, uh, appetite, the appetite for perfection. St. Thomas had a strong sense that created beings, all creatures, have an appetite for perfection. In his metaphysics, in his philosophy, the thing to note is that for him, perfection, and he gets all of this, he's borrowing all of this from Aristotle, is synonymous with being actuated, with good, and goodness is to be fully, the more actualized a thing is in its potential, the more good it is, the more perfect it is. All created beings, all creatures, whether we're talking about a man, a woman, a dog, a tree, or even a rock, or a planet, or a goose, in a certain sense, want, in as much as we can speak of about a rock, rock wanting anything, all created being wants to be fully actualized, fully perfect, which is to say every creature wants and yearns, is created hardwired to do what that creature does. Trees are hardwired to grow toward the sun. So a tree wants to grow towards the sun. Geese are hardwired to fly south for the winter. The whole of creation is yearning for actualization and complete perfection, which, of course, for St. Thomas is what God is. God is the fullness of perfection and full actualization. And But here's the thing. I kind of just gave this away, but actualization always requires for everything something else or somebody else, some other agent, other than the created being itself. This is true whether that other agent is God himself, who can bestow perfection on any creature at his will, or other created agents who are good in some respects or actualized in some respects and still in, have unfulfilled potential, potency in other respects. So, you know, the cold pizza, uh, depends on whether you think a pizza should be hot or cold, and I, there could be a legitimate debate about that, right? But a, a hot pizza, a cold pizza that should be hot, needs the actualization, something that's already perfectly hot, to bring it to its perfection of heat. A heated oven, a fire, it needs something. So, um, 
there's always, in order to be actualized, no creature can self-actualize perfectly and completely. We always need another agent who has the actuality and the perfection that we long for. That's true whether we're talking about food, it's also true when we're talking about love, to be honest. The human person, who is, for St. Thomas and Aristotle, a composite of body and soul, is actualized, and therefore perfect in some respects, as we all are here, and imperfect in others. None of us is fully perfect or completely actualized in all of our respects and all of our potential. And we need others. We need other persons. We need other things. We need other activity to bring our various imperfections, our various capacities to fulfillment and to act, to actualize in ways that we have not yet been actualized. So one way to think about this, every person finds fulfillment outside of himself or herself. Every, age, every creature finds fulfillment outside of itself. The way Thomas and Aristotle would put this is every agent acts for an end or for a purpose, for a good. Now, get this. For St. Thomas, love, in its most primal sense of the word, in its metaphysical ontological sense, is this drive, is this movement in creatures, this movement of the appetite for what is in fact, and the word here I'm going to use is connatural, what will really perfect them. Nobody pursues things that eventually kind of make you worse and miserable or hurt you. Connatural means that this is something that is actually going to perfect me. This drive, this appetite, this for that which is perfecting, which is in accord with our nature, St. Thomas says that's one way to think about love. In that sense, even though we're equivocating here, rocks have it. Rocks love to be on the ground. Animals, you know, love, geese love to fly south. But what separates these natural loves and animal loves from human love is precisely that men and women can know and they can understand and they can choose. We can choose where we will find our perfection in what activities, in what things, and in what person. We can not only choose what we want, what we think we can, will perfect us, we can also choose the steps to take to reach it and see the connection between what we're doing. I'm getting closer to that college degree. Ours is a chosen love. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what separates us from everything else is our appetite is a chosen love. So Thomas would agree that John Paul with John Paul, that all creation is called out of nothingness, but that man has a unique role in all this precisely because of his understanding and his power to choose, which is what makes him in the image of God. The second principle Aquinas, of Aquinas' thought is his strict hylomorphism. The theory that the body and soul are so united, I hate to use the word intertwined, it's because it seems like they're parts. They're not parts for St. Thomas. Um, they are two principles of the one being. For, the human, for St. Thomas, the human person is not just a body, and also not just a soul. The human person is body and soul together. It's completely wrong to think that John Paul was the first to emphasize the importance of the body. He wasn't. Aquinas had already realized that these two principles, body and soul, are inextricably linked to human activity. 
The body is the material in us, the rational soul is the formal in us, it's what makes us human, the soul is what makes our body a human body. The body is made for the soul, but this does not mean that the body is a mere instrument of the soul, even though the soul, we believe and by faith, can live without the body. The human soul is such a substance that it needs the body to be complete itself. When we die, we don't turn into angels. We remain human persons or human souls in the beatific vision without our bodies. Aquinas' insistence on this fundamental fact that the human person is body and soul, he, he holds that there is, an there is an immaterial element to human thought that cannot be explained, for instance, by bodily organs, no matter how many neurons we see firing in the brain. There's, 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 there's the work of the soul in universal human knowledge about with great you know, how do we come up with great ideas like freedom and, and liberty and you know, all sorts of things. Um, he would agree and he would be happy to point to CAT scans and PET scans and neuroscience to see like how the body and the brain works into that, but he would disagree that somehow those simple firings of the neurons can explain all the big universal ideas that man and women, men and women come up with. But yet he doesn't deny that there's a material part for a, a material element in our human knowledge and our human choices. That all of the sights and sounds and tastes and things that we touch, all of this, this that the body is the principle of contact between the soul and the world, and that every knowledge, every piece of information we have and all the knowledge we have begins with our senses, our physical senses. He's so consistent that the human person is a composite of, of body and soul that he even argues that after death, when our soul separates from the body and is, God willing, united in the beatific vision, we are still in some sense lacking because our soul is lacking the body for which it is made. Now, although this deficit is certainly made up for by union with God, but you see the key here, our soul is such that it needs the body, it's made for the body. This is exactly, by the way, what distinguishes our personhood from the personhood of God and of the angels. We are embodied persons. We are not purely spiritual persons. The third principle is this rational love. As I said earlier, human love is distinguished from those natural drives of perfection. We are composite creatures, and so we do have a bodily side, a sort of animal side in us. Authentic and distinctively human love requires that that animal side, that our passions, our emotions, our sensual desires, uh, be subordinate to what is distinctly human, which is our reason and our love, our chosen love. And so Aquinas, along with John Paul and the classical Christian tradition, insists that this is an inherently difficult task after original sin to keep a harmony between our intellect, our minds, our reason, and our sensual passions. This is the source of St. Paul's famous phrase, I do not do the good that I want to do, I do the very evil that I hate. Now, by definition, remember, love for Aquinas is that drive to perfection, that drive out of oneself to the good. So married men and women must obviously find some perfection in each other. 
You're all probably too young to have seen the Jerry Maguire film from 20-some years ago. But yes, you complete me. You know, this is what the spouses should be able to say to each other. You know, we're all half circles waiting to be whole. There's all sorts of bumper stickers we can make for this, right? Just don't say St. Thomas said it, you know. But for this love to be truly human love, it has to be characterized by what is specifically human, the fact that we can think and reason. So love must be a choice that's guided by reason and guided by truth. So for St. Thomas, and I, would, I just want to say this, he's not trying to snuff out passion and emotion. In fact, for St. Thomas, when our passions and our emotions are directed to reason, are directed to the higher part of ourselves, are directed to the higher truths of humanity and ultimately to God, they become more distinctively human. For St. Thomas, the virtuous person is not someone who doesn't feel. He's not a Stoic. St. Thomas is not in favor of Stoicism. For St. Thomas, the virtuous person is one who feels most deeply. Because the virtuous person is not afraid to feel. Doesn't, knows that his or her feelings aren't going to carry him away. Fourth. The equality of men and women. This one is a little tricky, but we'll move right through this. Even though St. Thomas is strict hylomorphism, even though St. Thomas is sorry, strict hylomorphism and his indebtedness to Aristotelian biology forced him to assert the physical superiority of men to women. He advocated an equality between the sexes that was unique for his milieu. His settled position on marriage, for instance, is that it is a conjugal relationship which he called the highest form of friendship, amicitia maxima. In spite of their sexual differences, however, and even though he argued, once again following St. Paul and most of the Christian tradition, that the husband was the head, is the head of the family, he insists that there is a certain equality between husband and wife because equality is a necessity for friendship. There's a sort of a domestic justice between the two. Friendship can only exist between equals. And it always entails, and this is also from Aristotle, a common endeavor, an attempt to make each other better persons. True friendship for Aquinas wants the good not only for oneself, but for one's friend. So much so that when my friend has his or her good, it's as though the good is mine. I, I rejoice. Your friend's good, what makes your friend happier and better, comes to make you better and happier, happier simply because your friend is happier. But friendship that is based only on utility, what friends can give to each other, and sometimes relationships with men and women can be based only on utility, that often, those friendships cease once the needs are filled or are no longer able to be filled by each other. True friendship is not an end. Uh, does not, sorry, true friendship does not end when it ceases to be useful. So concerned was Aquinas about the equality between husband and wife that he provides detailed arguments why monogamy and indissolubility are necessary aspects of marriage in order to protect the equality of the spouses. Keep in mind that in his day, women were generally without means. He believed that living marriage in any other way 
would effectively reduce wives to a position of inequality and servility to their husbands. And he was categorically against such an arrangement. Fifth, in St. Thomas's view, the husband and wife, this is the marital debt, which is not language we use these days, but it's sort of important and fun to talk about and maybe reclaim. The husband and wife give to each other in their marriage a certain authority over their bodies in the exchange of mutual consent. Not absolute authority, a certain authority. This gift has traditionally been called the marital debt, which I realize is an archaic term. It's what each spouse gives to the other of themselves. It means, in traditional terms, that each spouse can request the conjugal act from the other. You belong to me and I belong to you. Once you're married, you know, uh, the conjugal act simply becomes part of the relationship, right, with married couples. And, you know, I hope you have an opportunity to talk to married couples sometime about how that happens and what that's like, because it's definitely not what it's like when you're simply dating or cohabitating. Now, although this language may seem dated, it does show that St. Thomas had some understanding that the, human, that the husband and wife are equally indebted to each other, body and, I would say, soul, even if he doesn't use language like self-gift, which is a much more contemporary way of speaking. But it also shows that he wanted to protect the couple from lust and the possibility, believe it or not, of objecting each, objectifying each other sexually. It is possible to lust after one's spouse. In fact, St. Thomas provides, you have to kind of look for him, and that would be kind of a fun little essay, but St. Thomas provides several parameters for asking this debt to prevent one spouse from lusting after each other. Although I have to say, he only, he only mentions the possibility of husbands lusting after their wives. He never, said, he never suggests wives could, in fact, lust after their husbands. Though, you know, I think today I would probably say that's also possible. He doesn't get too detailed. He leaves a lot to prudence and the couple to discern in the relationship. But the whole point, to use somewhat contemporary language, is to protect the bodies of each from being used and objectified as the man and the woman have given their bodies to each other. The sixth and final principle, the formal element of marriage. Toward the end of his life, St. Thomas wrote that the formal element of marriage is this the inseparable union of souls of the married couple. Some recent scholarship has begun to focus on this statement, this idea in Aquinas and how it relates to contemporary debates about the unitive and the procreative. While Aquinas and scholasticism can sometimes be accused of being overly naturalistic or physicalistic in its emphasis on the primacy of procreation, which is a charge I deny, by the way, the fact that Aquinas understood marriage to consist of a union of souls is highly significant. Just as the human person is a composite of body and soul in which what is formal, the soul, must be united to what is material, the body, and just as the body and soul cannot be separated in this life, so neither can the formal and material elements of marriage be separated. The formal element of marriage, the union of souls, cannot be separated from the material element of marriage, which is the body and its procreative potential. Nor can these be separated from the end of marriage, which is the begetting and upbringing of children. The conjugal act itself is, is, the, is the place par excellence where the formal aspect of marriage is united in the bodily aspect and where we see the bond of souls, the bond of husband and wife, 
manifested by a lot or bodily that provides the foundation for St. Thomas. And he, this is also a lot of things he talks about. Uh, the husband and wife coming together for the care of the children. It's not just appropriation, but also the education of the children. Those are the same thing for the church. It's not two separate things. It's not just, it's not just appropriating. It's also educating. And that doesn't mean you know, saving money so they can come to the University of Texas at Austin or go to Harvard. Right? It means educating them on how to be human. Right? Raising them. The two cannot be separated. The body and soul can't be separated. The form and the material can't be separated. Insisting that marriage is formally the union of souls is what makes marriage a distinctly human endeavor and not simply an animal one. To conclude, um, what does all this mean for the theology of the body? Obviously, I'm grateful for St. John Paul II re-articulating this in a modern milieu, but I also think it's a mistake to interpret it obviously is something that's radically new. I would count it as a sort of rediscovery of themes that are presented um, for a modern audience or in our, for our modern ears. Bringing St. Thomas back into the conversation would have the, has the benefit of linking this uh, to the stronger metaphysical, philosophical, and theological tradition in which John Paul was operating. And this is, I think, also what he, also, what he wants, right? It's not surprising that in his last published work, his final memoir, Memory and Identity, and I'll just close with this, I've really gone over time here, I'm sorry. Pope John Paul II insisted, if we wish to speak rationally about good and evil, we have to return to St. Thomas Aquinas, to the philosophy of being. With the phenomenological method, for example, we can certainly study experiences of morality or religion or simply what it is to be human and draw from them a significant enrichment of our knowledge. But we must not forget that all of these analyses implicitly presuppose the reality of the absolute being, God, and also the reality of being human, that is, being a creature. If we do not set out from these realist presuppositions, such as the ones Aquinas offers, we will end up in a vacuum. Thank you. Sorry, that went longer than I intended. I think it was an introduction about human identity. Uh, I could just like one, maybe two questions. Thank you very much for your talk, Father Petri. Uh, just a quick question. Um, at the beginning, you were talking about the things that you should questions like this all the time. Um, at the beginning, we were talking about the story in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 as the basis for JPT's theology of the body. Um, to what extent do you have to read that literally in order to accept that? Yeah, so that's a good question. What extent do you have to read Genesis 2 and 3? I don't think he's reading them literally. I mean, you know, the churches from the Middle Ages, the church read scripture, especially Genesis and the Pentateuch, um, according to like multiple senses, not only the literal sense, what the text says, but also what could the sense be communicating about Jesus Christ, about God, and about the human person. And so I think that's what John Paul's doing, you know. So you don't necessarily have to believe about an Adam and Eve, although that's a complicated question, especially with evolution and things. But for John Paul, it's communicating a larger truth, which is man's, ancient man's consciousness about who he is. And of course, we believe it's inspired by God. So it's not simply, you know, a story of a culture and how they understood themselves, but that God, through the process of divine inspiration and preservation, um, 
wanted this sort of truth to be communicated down through the generations. And obviously you have different saints and different generations who take different sort of nuggets from that. So I don't know if you necessarily have to believe it literally or understand it literally for this all to be true. Because for him it's really an example of self-awareness of, of, of an ancient culture that um, is part of our Judeo-Christian tradition as inspired. Thank you, Father. I think going back to your praying to this sin section of the theology of the body, and you were talking about we need, it's going to this phrase that we can't give without what we possess. Yeah. And we need self possession. Henry, could you clarify what it is? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question, and I kind of glossed over because we could have spent all night just talking about that. For John Paul and for St. Thomas, that means obviously having some semblance of mastery over one's cravings, one's desires, and that is only accomplished slowly as one matures in life, but by making, for St. Thomas, it's, it's a little bit easier to explain. St. Thomas is all John Paul agrees with, he uses a different language. You know, for instance, I mean, let's take it out of the sexual and, you know, that, but, you know, just being a college student, you know, if, I don't know what the culture here is at the University of Texas, but it's like most universities, Friday night, Saturday night, the party nights, right? So you can give into that, and you're craving to just go and let loose, right? And then, you know, have to cram Sunday night for the Monday test. And the more you do that for St. Thomas, the more you make that kind of choice, Friday and Saturday night to go out and party, the more you're going to be likely to make that kind of choice, because our choices. Uh, John Paul called, said our choices reflect back into us. For St. Thomas, what he would use the word is habit, and it's not like what we mean by habit. He meant like we begin to grow a character. Our choices define us. And the more I make certain choices of a certain kind, the more my character gets built. I become a Friday and Saturday night partier, right? But if I'm a person who moderately goes out maybe one Friday a month or two Friday, I don't have what to, that's what you have to figure out, right? But you become a person who's able to say, no, I am not going to go to a kegger on Friday night. I need to stay in. I'm a, maybe it's for whatever reason. I've got a test. I've got to write this paper. The more you make those kinds of choices, the more likely you're going to make those kinds of choices. And for St. Thomas, those are better choices uh, that are part of you being more human. And you're going to become virtuous. And that's what self-mastery is. It's ultimately becoming a virtuous person who more likely than not makes good choices and humane choices, right? And that's something you kind of got to grow into. And also by the help, as Christians we believe, there's, we could do a whole thing on this. We believe there's also a whole sort of way God can kind of infuse a certain level of virtue and faith. So, for instance, if you're you know, a person who struggles with dieting or eating well, you might also be a person who's actually decent at keeping the Friday fast during Lent. And you're not doing that because you like it, you're doing it because you know God, it's, it's like a gift to God. That's kind of an infused temperance on Fridays during Lent. Does that make sense? So, so for St. John Paul II and St. Thomas, the proper married person, the good married person, is going to be someone walking into the marriage with a certain good level of self-mastery and virtue. And I should say this as we're talking about it. Um, and I don't mean to open up a can of worms, but I know we've got to do adoration, right, exposition, but... Um, when it comes to marriage and sexuality in today's culture, I am a confessor. Pornography is an epidemic that vitiates against your self-mastery. It vitiates, especially the fact that it can be uh, had seemingly anonymously and free. 
Because all of those images and all the uses of those bodies are not, in fact, real. That's no marriage operates in the bedroom the way you see on those images. And so it clouds and creates a lack of self-mastery because you're giving in to what is a very fundamental and basic craving whenever you want, but also it's also clouding your intellect on what the sexual act actually is and how it should be uh, uh, engaged in. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you all. Have a great day.